What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nuclear Barbarians. It is I, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny, and I am here with Andrew Plimpton for another installment of Energy Cinema. We had not one but two major energy movies come out this year. Our first one was Oppenheimer, which was frankly a chore. And this time we got another extremely long movie, which did not feel like a chore, despite how many times I had to pee during it, which was Scorsese's Killer of the Flower Moon, which we're going to talk about today. But first and foremost, welcome back, Andrew. It's great to have you. Yep, it's great to be back. So I have been looking forward to this movie since I started reading about it. One of the people in the Osage tribe did a long Twitter thread when Scorsese, and I think the teaser trailer got released, like, you know, the 45 second or whatever. And he did a long thing explaining how closely Scorsese worked with the tribe uh -huh. to right. like get this story right. It's a super complex story, which we'll get into. Like, I think it actually warranted three and a half hours. Yeah. Like, had we lost a half hour here and there, <laughs> it would have been like, it would have been like Mission Impossible 2. We were like, what are we doing here right now? What's going on? <laughs> um, uh, and instead, we got this long thing. But just overall, give me your impressions of the film before we get into the nitty gritty here. So I left the theater and broadly speaking, was impressed and satisfied. I think it managed to fill its runtime. I mean, there's a very bland, positive thing to say about it. But broadly speaking, it managed to warrant its length, you know, as, mm -hmm. as you were saying. And it was very detailed, very rigorously conceived. There are, as we will talk about, this story is one that you know, there are many possible approaches to it. And having finished the film, I felt that there were many positive things to say about the approach that Scorsese chose and that the acting was very strong. It, there are some very good performances of complex and less than likable people in it. Throughout. And, yeah, throughout, throughout, definitely. And nevertheless, by the end, sort of like, it, ha it has not been a film that has made me want to stamp a firm and fast verdict on it. It's been one that I've been I've been turning over and interested in looking at the possible areas of complaint about as much as I as much as I did admire it. One of the surprising things about it, which somehow I didn't realize first, is the extent to which even though in terms of subject matter, it's in term and by subject matter, what I really mean by that is in terms of the population depicted, it's mm -hmm. Scorsese, but it does fall somewhat neatly into a genre of films and a story that he has told again and again in, for the most part, I think, interesting different mm -hmm. ways, which is of a man or a group of people who rise to power and then lose control of it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I also think, you know, to me, what I enjoy, so I enjoyed many things about this movie. I didn't enjoy the ending, which we'll get to. I think that there's like a really, the ending is, I think, most indicative of what I think 
was happening in terms of Scorsese's self-consciousness about his canon, his oeuvre of films. Yeah. And however, I thought this was some of the best camera work I've seen in a Scorsese film mm. in a long time. Incredible tracking shots. Yeah. I could see him really pulling from his substantial breadth of knowledge of the history of film. There's this shot, this tracking shot that felt like the biggest meta commentary on Scorsese as a filmmaker and film in general. And it's a very simple tracking shot. It's only a few seconds. And it's Leonardo DiCaprio's walking down the hallway of his prison cell. And the camera tracks all like parallel to him with the bars of the cells in between. Mm-hmm. And which makes Leonardo DiCaprio look like those old things that rely when you spin them and look through the hole, you see the guy riding the horse, but mm-hmm. it looks clippy. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, that's the original moving image. Like what we're getting here is like a callback to the origins of film almost is, yeah. you know, illusion and things like that, which is also the moment at which Leonardo's Da Vinci's character is on his way to revealing himself as congenitally dishonest. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like for real, like it's like all doubts are removed. And so I thought that that was interesting. It's like the original trick of the moving image mm-hmm. and it's his journey to fully revealing who his character is. So there are great little moments like that. I also thought that there were some very successful meta commentaries on Corsese's oeuvre, largely to do with casting. Uh-huh. Mostly to do with Robert De Niro. Huh. So Robert De Niro, you know, to get into the plot a little bit and we'll transition into what this film is actually about. This film takes place around the turn of the century, the roaring 20s, right after World War One, when the Osage tribe out in the West discovers that they have substantial oil reserves. Hmm. And the big head honcho white guy in town is King, played by Robert De Niro who is cozied up like a parasite to the tribe, quite literally, and is draining the life out of it. Like literally, as he lines his own pockets. And we'll get into some of that. But what I will say is that his character has a very similar arc to, I think his character's name is Jimmy and Goodfellas. Uh-huh. And the amount, like the scene that I always think of or thought of from Goodfellas while watching this is the scene where Ray Liotta's wife goes to see Jimmy and he uh-huh. keeps telling her to step into this darkened storefront uh-huh. to see these designer goods. And she's like, I'm pretty sure he's going to whack me. And then when Ray Liotta realizes when he's being asked to go on a vacation, he's like, oh shit, I got a narc. And they're like, they are going to kill me. And there are very similar things with Robert De Niro that happened in this character's uh-huh. arc. So I thought that was, again, like you said, same type of story, same arc, and even similar casting. Yeah, though also, like, you know, admirably, he has found a variety of ways of using De Niro throughout, like, his career. I mean, you know, my two personal favorites, I mean, maybe towards the end, we can talk more about Scorsese's as a whole, but my two personal favorite De Niro performances in Scorsese are actually pretty early on. They're Mean Streets and Taxi Driver. I mean, Um, yeah. Yeah, but especially Mean Streets, which actually might be my favorite Scorsese film. 
Ooh, that's like first Scorsese too. That's like, oh, gee, that's, Um, yeah. And in many ways, there are things that I think people are understandably frustrated with later Scorsese about, which I don't necessarily agree, don't always feel the same way, but I get, but that are very interestingly different in Mean Streets, largely in that sort of the mobsters are confused and incompetent and sometimes cowardly mm-hmm. in it. Just something I absolutely love. But anyway, I think it's it's worth noting back to Killers of the Flower Moon that so obviously this is based on a book that, you know, I don't think either of us you haven't read it at this point. I know I, I read some of it a while ago, but there was like a big, you know, blockbuster piece of journalism or that came out, same title. And from what we know, the chief difference of approach in this is that David Grand's book is from the point of view of the investigators who discovered this. Yes. It says on that. And he is Scorsese's is largely from the point of view of the perpetrators of the crime, though it is not so much. I mean, the original perpetrator is Robert De Niro's character, King. But our real window into it is Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Ernest Burkhardt, who is his nephew and is brought in. You know, he, he has fought in he, he's just come back from the war. Mm-hmm. He starts working for his uncle and he also falls in love with an Osage woman and marries her. Yep. And so he is I, describing him as the moral center of the movie is wrong. I I don't know why exactly that came up, but sort of he is a lot of the issues of the movie sort of like they meet in him and he is. He's a double agent, basically, is what is what gets revealed. Right. So he falls in love with Molly Burkhart is her name. She is an Osage member. Is played very beautifully by Lily Gladstone. Yeah, but just an incredible performance. Also, some of the things they did with dialect in this was, I have to say, just as a side note, fantastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, yes, the reason why he was picked is because in Grand's book, from what I understand from interviews with DiCaprio and Scorsese, is that Ernest was something of a cipher. Mm-hmm. Not a lot was known about him, which meant that a lot could be put into him story-wise. And it allowed for Scorsese to play on similar themes of corruption, dishonesty, and redemption, even when it doesn't happen, right? Like that's, it's, he's still fundamentally interested in that question as a question. And I think by locating it on the perpetrator side, you know, Scorsese has never really been interested in cops and robbers. Yeah. Right. He's interested in robbers and cops. Like that's the that's Wolf of Wall Street. That's Goodfellas. You know, that's all of this stuff. You rarely get a lot of time with law enforcement. Yeah. And it's the same same in this. They're not interesting to him, I think. And I think that really stems from his Catholicism, by the way. He is far more interested in the sinner. Yeah. He's far more interested in the dilemma of the sinner. And I think that Ernest Burkhardt is the perfect example of that. So Burkhardt basically hops off the train and you immediately understand who he is. Yeah. I mean, it's great visual storytelling. You understand who he is with as soon, like 
as soon as he walks off the train platform and he walks past a fist fight yeah. that he's not involved in. It's over money. He doesn't even care. And he loves, he loves it. Yeah. He loves the violence. He loves everything that's at stake in it. You can tell already that this is a dude who, through a few other clues, is not that bright. Yes. And has yeah, very, very few scruples. Yeah. It is very important that he is stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if, if anything, his stupidity has a direct relationship to his guile mm. because it allows him to lie to himself with greater sophistication. Yeah. And that's, that's like one of the most interesting questions about the movie is like, to what extent does he fully comprehend what he's doing? You know, and what do yeah. you, is it one that you think you have an answer? You are so, like a permanently kind of unresolved thing. Do you think? You know, I think so. I think that there are a couple of ways to treat this question, right? Yeah. And these are like almost old school philosophical questions, right? Like, do we agree with Plato that the good is a type of knowledge? Uh huh. And can therefore be intellectually ascertained, or do we have more Christian, let's say, as a juxtaposition, understanding that even the humble and the slow can uh -huh. be capable of charity beyond the comprehension of the wise and the guileful? I'm, I mean, I don't know. That seems up for debate here, except if you're going to factor in the influence of King. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And right. King almost immediately you see you watch him in his first interaction with mm -hmm. Burkhart with Ernest Burkhart clock exactly who his nephew is and start to put him to good use yeah like yeah. he asks him do you like women do, are, do, are you fine with non-white women are basically are you greedy yeah did you see any carnage and how did it make you feel in other words yeah how useful are you going to be to me who is slowly going to start murdering off men, women, and children in this tribe to yeah. take their land rights away from them Yeah, and move it yeah. towards our family? That's the whole premise of the thing, right? Yeah. So uh, let me just finish the thought here real quick, which is that I really think that Ernest is inherently vulnerable Mm -hmm. because of his stupidity. I mean, he is stupid. Like the movie isn't, there's not a nice way to say it. Like over and over again, he's displayed as being yeah. wildly incompetent at being dishonest. His only gift seems to be that he can say one thing and mean another in yeah. the dumbest way possible. It's like he's underestimated by the people he's supposed to deceive, including his wife, because he's just not that bright, you yeah. know? And I really think that it is King's influence that allows him to lie to himself with such incredible sophistication, despite the fact that he's not very smart, because he is also not a very willful person either. Yeah. So there have been, we, we can move on from him a bit in a, in a sec, but there, so I've been taking a look at as i was saying earlier like i've been interested in what some of the criticisms 
are of this film. And the one so far that I don't have a ton of sympathy for largely focuses on the conception of DiCaprio's character. Um, mm. There was some, I think it was in Variety, maybe it was somewhere else that said, you know, okay, so is he dumb? Does he love his wife? Is he evil? I don't get it. This character's muddled. And I just felt kind of like, okay, like, it's actually, that's the whole point. <laughs> no, there was a like, yeah, like, I, I think um, Jessica Crispin, who's, who's writing I like a lot, and gave the impression in this Substack post that she did not um, like the movie. She said, you know, I think, you know, people who write novels, people who write movie reviews, it would benefit you to, I don't know, know people, have neighbors. Yeah. It could maybe like, figure out that people are not just one thing. There was a more sophisticated one that I still think I disagree with that came from the edi editor of the website that I write for. He um he covered um Killers of the Flower Moon and he said that his chief problem was with it was that it failed to ask the question is Ernest Burkhardt given what he's done capable of loving. And I I I think I I respect that criticism more. I still think I disagree with it largely because I think they did a pretty good job of, you know, with see, showing how under the influence of King, he just, he finds himself doing and, I mean, no, I don't, I'm not saying this to exonerate him. No, for sure. Kind of like contradictory things. And in this, you know, the glorious this really amazing scene towards the end when he confronts his wife when she you know knows what he's done he just look he's sort of like gloriously baffled and kind of like as though he does not fully understand why what he has done should keep him from being able to love his wife or or how exactly he got there and I, I was talking to a friend about this a few days ago who, you know, I was commiserating about some of the less intelligent criticisms of his character that I've come across. And he said, and this this is sort of like a, a conventional, but but I think very accurate take on it, which is, you know, DiCaprio's character in this movie is sort of like a classic, like if he'd been in Germany in the 1940s, he would have come or 1930s, he would become a Nazi. Yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. Like that's that I think is you know he wasn't he wasn't Hitler, he wasn't like the architect of it, but like he would have been like okay yeah I'm gonna become he's a useful know. idiot like that's the I mean he's definitionally that you know I mean uh, people who sorry go ahead no go go ahead I I didn't have yeah yeah so people who are like you know is he smart is he dumb you know I think one of the things that's weird to me about a certain type of intellectuals that they think it you have to be like smart to lie. Like they really think that, which is like crazy to me. Like, you know, you got to be a genius to just be like, oh, I didn't do that after you did it, which is, no, it's not, it's not, I guess this is putting me on one side of those divides we're talking about. To me, it's not even a necessarily a question of yeah. intelligence. It's about emotional and moral ability, you yeah. know, and that's, and the other thing is, is like, you know, I've been sober for a while and like I've met. Dude, an alcoholic in their cups. Dude, yeah. when I was drinking, oh my God, I'd be like, I am so, so sorry. 
I did what I am absolutely about to do again. <laughs> after which I will express the same level of absolute <laughs> bafflement, both at you being upset and my own behavior. Yeah. 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 You know, like um, it's, it's to me, it's sort of like, I agree with Jessica Christman. It's like, have you met people? And I could say, if we're going to transition out of earnest now to talk about Molly Burkhart, who I think we should really talk about. Yeah. That is also why I completely understand her credulity. Yeah. Because, yeah. oh, just so people know, this is the, like the major spoiler thing. Ernest is helping his uncle kill her entire family. Yeah. Including yeah. her sisters and her sister's like children. <laughs> like, and this, you know, when like the sisters had, I'm sorry if I'm. No, it, spoil away. Yeah. We're going to put a spoiler. Like, the, the scene when her sister's family is blown up. Uh, yeah. Or it's, yeah, their house is blown up, you know, with them in it. You know, not only is Ernest helping that, but that was largely a decision of his that was not King Lou's decision. It was a decision that let, he made essentially because he was pissed with his brother-in-law for blocking being... him as exactly who the fuck he was. Yeah, exactly. And that that I think is like, it's a very, it's an emotionally challenging scene, but of course, but it's one of the best and it's largely, you know, because it's a, pretty brilliant display of human it, like the the havoc that incompetence can wreak but yes yeah, so overrigs the house it's like it explodes too much it's like the perfect metaphor for everything that's wrong with Ernest, right and he's sort of amazed by his wife's immediate grief and mourning she molly becomes more and more paranoid because yeah. she understands that people are slowly killing off members of the tribe they know the enemy is within, right? There's a wolf in sheep's clothing. They don't know it's king. And it's also, I mean, I could see, I haven't read a lot of reviews, but I could imagine that there are people who are like, well, why didn't she put two and two together? And it's like, well, do, do you want to believe that? Yeah. Do and you they... really, like, you're that desperate. Do you really want to believe that in your darkest hour, that it is your husband and his family uh -huh. that is doing all of this. As she becomes more and more paranoid, she's a diabetic. And he starts because, yeah, and because she's the one that's like, we need to get the FBI involved. I'm going to Washington, you know, this, that, and the other. King has Ernest lace her insulin with heroin. Yeah. To slow her down. Right. So he's poisoning his wife as he, you know, helps her, quote unquote, helps her. Right. Yeah. And so, first of all, she's like half out of her mind for most of it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I could totally understand with, understand her character not being able to or not wanting to reckon with the fact that this is how it was going on. Now, I don't know how it goes on in the book. So I can't speak to that. But to me, like I look at their relationship and it can be kind of annoying when people like psychologize characters. But to me, I'm like, yeah, that's like a codependent relationship. Yeah. Like somebody's in complete denial that the yeah. person that they're attached to is ruining their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, she... She wises up at the end once. Yes, she, of course. Yeah. 
And it's worth noting Gladstone does a pretty amazing job oh. also with the physical effects of illness and, yes. uh, you know, of portraying, you know, how one just of convincingly doing it, but also of how being under the influence, so to speak, can, you know, warp your mind, make you more vulnerable. And that I think is, I have, I have read stuff where, where they think the love story is unconvincing. That's, a, that's one that I'm more willing to entertain, though I, I think that, that, it, that it basically worked for me. You know, the, the, the courtship and, you know, all that. Yeah, because there's something about, like, early on, yeah. you know, there's something weirdly honest about Ernest when he's courting her. Yeah, yeah. He's just like, he's like, I don't want to work. Like, I want to party. Like, I don't care about any of this. And I think that makes him seem fun and benign. Yeah. Yeah. And she, you know, at, at that point, she does not have reason to suspect King. King has known her since she was a little kid and has, at, before you find out, well, I mean, we, we know pretty early on that, you know, De Niro's character is bad news. But he, the, the front that he has presented is, you know, one of like, these are my people too. I have known them since they've grown up. You know, I'm, I'm your guy to go to. He speaks their language. Speaks their language. Yeah. Which I did not expect. Yeah. And so uh, one thing I do want to emphasize. So beyond the fact that in terms of approach, it is not from the investigator's point of view. It is from the point of view of the perpetrators, you know, and I mean, you could you could say Molly is, you know, maybe the one Osage character we have something like a POV with, but is also in terms of approach, there is a lot of attention paid to how this was done. So like, what are the steps that King took to ensure this power and sort of methodically and this this is sort of like where it feels a bit like a mob movie is mm -hmm. you know the hits being carried out yeah you know did they do to you know get this piece of power they killed this person you know how did they intimidate this person mm -hmm. are the people that they bribed where did they fuck up in that and that of course all comes back towards the end where there was a trial uh, where in which there is a trial um and that I think there are a lot of positive things to say about that. I also think it's, you know, an area that is also open to critique, but you know what it's in a way, one thing you could say is that Scorsese and his, his insistence on looking at all of that and into the best of his ability, getting in every single little piece mm -hmm. of how this is done, that that is something that warrants the length. Because it is, you know, something that he really wants to, wants us to bear witness to. Yeah. In, in its entirety and in tremendous detail. Well, and I think that there are also really nice moments that are built into that, which largely has to do with the relationship most American citizens had to the federal government in the 20s, which like no one talks about, but is, needs to be talked about in this film and is talked about. Where the skepticism and hostility to the Fed is like huge. Like when Jesse Plemons shows up as the FBI character, they think he's a private eye, even after he says, I'm from the Bureau of Investigation. No one knows what that is, and they don't think it's real. 
Yeah. Right. You know, like it's like, yeah, like, you know, and they're like, why would you trust this federal guy over me, your neighbor? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like they're the amount that you can sort of rely on that, the sort of hostility that there is to prohibition and all these things were very real at the time. Prohibition was mostly like an East Coast wasp thing (laughs) that a lot of people thought was like a very unfair encroachment into their everyday lives by the federal government. Um, And that's also part of this. We have bootleggers that are involved. Like that whole economy is part of this thing as well. That's the underworld that King reaches into to get his killers um, and stuff like that. And it also helps you, I think, in having each little thing get set up. It puts you into a feeling of despair in the movie. And like, I can't even believe what I'm watching right now. So until Ernest admits on the stand to everything that he's done, I was like, oh, wow, he really did it. Yeah. Yeah. Which was a cool, like the fact that you spend three hours of each little step and until he's like, yeah, I did that and I did that and I did that. And you're like, holy shit, he did actually do all those things. Yeah. Yeah. Speaks to the sort of like dizzying strength Mm. of how exposition gives all of that moral and emotional weight Mm. in the movie because it builds up to the revelation of who King really is and Mm -hmm. who Ernest really is. Ernest will not admit to Molly that it wasn't just insulin he was giving her. That's like the final straw after everything is that he won't, he's either can't or won't be honest about that. It's that's a little ambiguous, which I think is great. And King is pitiless. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, has no depth. He is just a completely solid, super, like, surface-level operator and manipulator. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, it's also amazing how the how they, you know, Ernest tries to get out of it. Mm-hmm. He tries yeah. to say, after Brendan Fraser's character, who's a lawyer employed by the white people in the town, is like, yeah. you're basically going to fucking lie. And you're going to say that they beat you and you need to believe it. And Ursh is like, fine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 You know, it's not until after the death of his child and King sort of is more revealed to not be even the illusion of the man Mm -hmm. that Ernest might be able to think he is. Yeah. That Ernest goes to the stand, but at the, at the final count, he can't be, he can't be honest. And, and to her credit, Molly Burkhart's character can't. Like she's she's she can recognize reality. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a weird, not that weird, but film comparison that I I do think it purely at least in terms of the quality of Gladstone's performance and what she's doing comes close to, and that's the Hitchcock film Notorious. Have you seen mm. that one? I had that's a Hitchcock I haven't seen. It's one of it's maybe my favorite thing he did. At one point, Ingrid Bergman, who has been, you know, she's been the government has sent her to South America to I I think it's Brazil. I've seen this movie a lot. That's embarrassing that I don't remember that. But to essentially seduce a man that they that they know is a Nazi. 
and and, you know, then get his, you know, various nuclear secrets and whatever, you know, weapons of mass destruction secrets, you know, at the time. And, you know, she falls in love with Cary Grant, who's another agent, and he's like weirdly stifled. And she not only effectively seduces, but marries this, you know, Nazi who, you know, she doesn't, you know, and she hates that she's doing it. And then when he starts to suspect her, he and his mother begin to slowly poison her. And the second half of the movie is, you know, watching her, you know, get poisoned. And I think, you know, it's, it's a great performance from Bergman. And, you know, just she's in a very different position than, you know, Molly, than Molly Burkhart. But what Burkhart, what, excuse me, what Gladstone was doing, you know, with being able to convey the the effects of illness and poison and what it does to your psychology, you know, I, I think was completely on par. Go, going a little bit back, I so you were saying that you, you read that long thread about how closely Scorsese worked with the Osage tribe. Do you, do you know, I, th- that is something I actually... You know, I, I was aware of, but I did not read about in detail before I saw it. Do you, do you know much about the specifics of like what came up and what made him, you know? I, I, so I think a part of it was, I mean, I'm pulling this out of the archive of my brain. So I think the use of their language was a really, really important element of this. And I mean, a lot of it goes on subtitled, which I thought was like a very intentional and important part of this film. And I think there was also representations of their customs that was super important, right? Because marriage is such a huge part of this movie. Yeah. Marriage and death in particular, that that was very dialed in. And, you know, the Osage tribe is still, I mean, one of the more wealthy and powerful tribes in America, if if my understanding is, is correct. I've only met one person ever from Osage that I know of, and that is the conservative Gladden Pappen. I also think part of it might have been their Catholicism. I mean, Gladden's Catholic. He writes for like First Things and he lives in Budapest. Yeah. And that was, you know, when she asks Ernest, like, what religion are you? And he says Catholic. And she says, you don't go to church. Mm -hmm. You know, I think having the Catholicism featured was also part of it. I mean, you sort of see the Catholic churches like, strange syncretism with local and indigenous customs as it you know moves out from rome and you you get a little bit of that here so i think that those might have all been parts of it i mean i also i don't know if this was part of it but just the job that scorsese does in helping you understand how insanely wealthy the osage were Uh yeah was so well done yeah you know and there's one scene where that I think really drives this home, and it's when Ernest is talking to the guy who runs the Undertaker, mm-hmm. and he says, "Don't take my sister-in-law's pearls and rings off when you bury her this time." Wow. Like he's like, "Don't do that." Like, and they get into an argument about it, where the guy's like, "Come on, man," blah blah blah, and then Ernest starts complaining about the bill. Mm. He's like, "You're charging me Osage prices." Basically, I'm a, I'm a white man. Like, you don't charge me those prices now. Yeah. Those are Osage prices. In other words, you're overcharging me, you know, because you know how wealthy they are. Yeah. And then the guy looks at him and he says, 
they don't even have to work for that money. I have to work for this money. And I think like people don't understand like how deep, how long it took to pry ideas of like usury and passive income out of the Protestant and Catholic Christian inheritance that really molded the American psyche for a long time. Like that is super new. Like the whole like post Gordon Gecko greed is good shit. Like that was a long march for the institutions to get there. Uh huh. And I thought that that I was like, this is one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie. Yeah. Because what you see is you see is there, there's plenty of racial animus in this movie. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. Like you see a clan march in this movie. That is obviously some of what's going on is in the water. But yeah. I think what people don't understand is like the way in which that can latch onto or be interpreted through other inherited lenses mm-hmm. and that there's a weird class antagonism mm-hmm. and who works and who doesn't and whether it's even right not to work and make money at all is yeah. like a big question operating in the background of this for I think a lot of these characters who feel wrongfully entitled to do to these people whatever the hell they want yeah 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 so it was like in, in a lot of ways it was a very effective traveling and rigorous traveling back in time you know one of the most rigorous i've seen frankly like i was reading a history of the 20s leading up to going to see the movie not unintentionally i was doing it for my own research Mm -hmm. and i was like it is amazing how much got captured of the 20s cultural atmosphere here i mean i was i was like this is one of the most successful movies about the like jazz age and it is as far from new york as you could almost possibly get well, that was something I really appreciated about it. Like when, and you could see this just like, you know, even in, you know, the very first scenes of the film, you know, when they go into town, you know, realizing like, oh, this is actually, I don't think this is a town I have ever seen on film before. Like what is happening here? You know, who has wealth, who is dressed in this way? Like that, I, I do not think I have ever seen that. The costume design was another thing that the tribe worked closely with him on, which was incredible. I mean, like, not even necessarily that it's so rigorously captured, like tribal dress intersecting with American fashion at that time, which I thought was very, very interesting, but also how much was signaled about class and station through Uh clothing throughout. So I want to talk about one character before we sort of maybe move on to talking about Scorsese and maybe some more meta commentary on this because three and a half hour movie we could be here all day basically and it's Jesse Plemons character as the FBI agent which I think deserves some consideration because I think he really is I mean not just because he's the cop and they're the robbers yeah the way he plays the character has this really quiet moral force Mm-hmm. that has yeah. a strange innocence to it yeah. at least at first you yeah. know like when he first meets Ernest and he's yeah. like I'm from the Bureau of Investigation and I'm here to look into these murders and he goes what about them Jesse Clemens <laughs> is kind of like well who's doing it <laughs> yeah yeah and it, it, like he even speaks very quietly in it and, and timidly uh, Timidly, yeah, it, it, there's something like very nicely understated about him 
when he shows up and and as he maintains his performance, you know, like as he watches Ernest the times that he lets him out of jail. Mm-hmm. Don't am I remembering correctly that you never see him lose his cool? No, he never loses his cool. He's not angry. He's incredibly patient. Mm-hmm. And he also understands the game King is playing more than almost anyone else. And that becomes clear when he, this is like, this was out of a 50s film noir. Like I was like, this is Scorsese. Like this is Scorsese's Super Bowl right now. Like he is watching King pressure Ernest to sign over his head rights. Mm-hmm. If he dies, yeah, through a mirror in the street, yeah, yeah, and you see, based on Plemons's face, that he knows exactly what is going on, and he knows that he has to act sooner rather than later, yeah, to get Ernest into the fold, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and I think it's his patience. It's when you know you sort of see all the guys who are agents come meet out by the pop jacks. You know, that you realize that Jesse Plemons' character is nobody's fool, but he's willing to play somebody's fool if it gets gets him what he wants, which is, I I love that feature in a detective. Yeah. Yeah. That's like my favorite thing. Like, I don't like the hyper-competent, like, hardcore Jason Bourne operator as much anymore. I like the guy who knows how to play the game better than anybody else, and that's Plemons. But the moment, the only witness... Two, Ernest revealing his true, true colors is Jesse Plemons's character. And it cuts to him before that scene ends. Yeah. When Ernest won't admit that there was heroin in the insulin. Yeah. Yeah. And you see the look of like complete moral astonishment, not even outrage, astonishment on planet Plemons' face. Yeah. Where he was like, this guy is really like this. Yeah. Like, this is, that was amazing. <laughs> you could just see his gears turning his head. He's like, that was amazing to sit for. Yeah. And, you know, also just more broadly speaking about Plemons, if you think about at least what I'm aware of his, when he came on everyone's radar being, he's like, he, you know, he was a sadistic piece of shit in Breaking Bad. Yes. Uh, and, you know, his like sort of like unusual looking face was, you know, conventionally but effectively used to signal that there is, you know, something fucked up happening in his head. And now this movie, you know, if you he's done a lot since then and done a lot very well. But if you think of the contrast between that, you know, it really it reveals, you know, someone of, you know, I guess like great range. So. I, what I will say is Jesse Plemons, this is this is the Jesse Plemons lore. It, where he actually blows up isn't Breaking Bad. I think Breaking Bad is when everyone realizes he's an adult and that he can act. Oh, but yeah. But he well, plays the weird artsy kid on the Permian Panthers in the show version of Friday Night Lights. Oh, okay. I've actually never seen Friday Night Lights. Yeah. So, and that's that's who he plays. And he's sort of like this awkward, like aesthetically inclined rarity on the football team if memory serves so he's always been able to play these sort of awkward roles because it suits his frankly awkward face which i love i he has that he to me he has like a less sinister michael shannon thing going on facially yeah you know where michael shannon comes on and you're like i'm pretty sure this guy could kill someone and he could be the good guy (laughs) what 
you're watching. Jesse Plemons, you're kind of, he has a baby face a little bit. So you give him the benefit of the doubt. But I really liked how he didn't have to be angry on your behalf. What he had to do was like further as a third party ratify the moral degradation that you had been watching unfold because I got so sucked into it. Mm-hmm. Like I knew, and I, I, I know the moment it happened in this film, the mm-hmm. exact moment where I was totally sucked in. And it is when the guy is narrating how he became friends with that Osage depressive guy mm-hmm. before he decides to kill him. Yeah. And I was totally fascinated by their friendship. Yeah. And I was like, just sort of watching it all unfold and then he gets killed. And I was like, damn, that guy got shot. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I was like, oh, I'm in it now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know which way's up or down. And then once Plemon steps in, you're like, it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So before, before we talk about Scorsese, broadly speaking, should we discuss, you know, I guess like critiques of this, you know, areas, the. No intermission. That's so you and I share that. Like no intermission, which sucked. Uh, you work yeah. in a movie theater. What's the deal with that? Are they just not allowed to do intermissions anymore? What's the... It just, not unless one is built into the movie. Scheduling it has been like utterly bonkers. You know, there was, uh, the week that it came out, we were all like working till midnight. And yeah, there will be like, you know, working in a movie theater, the way the way that it is, it's like, it's busy, it's busy, it's busy downtime. And, you know, with a movie this, we're also showing Anatomy of a Fall, which is two and a half hours long. Oh, you know, wow. like eerie periods of silence where you're just like, what is going on? But yeah, no intermission. And then there's the end. Yeah. So that the, the end, do you want to explain what the end is? Yeah. Well, essentially, once the trial has included concluded and um, people have been brought to justice, so to speak, there is a radio play. Um, that we see being performed live in Vol is a, you know, in which you watch a 1920s, you know, I think New York audience, mm-hmm. um, you know, listen to the dramatic retelling of the end of this story. And then Scorsese himself comes on stage and gives and is the final narrator in this. And he and, reads Molly's obituary. Yeah, he reads Molly's obituary. And that is, on one hand, it was sort of cool to, you know, think about, you know, how would an audience at the time have been hearing this news and to be mm-hmm. sort of like back in time in that way. In that gesture of Scorsese's at the very end comes off, I think it's fair to say as, you know, well-intentioned, but heavy-handed. Um, yeah. As it's, you know, sort of, but you know, it, it, is is that largely your your takeaway? Yeah, that's that's my takeaway from it. I mean, so first of all, I love the conceit of the ending that you get the epilogue in a radio play. I love that they I love that they used her obituary and they mentioned that the murders were never mentioned. Yeah, you know, because the whole time by the end of the movie, you're like, how did I? How did like almost no one really know this story until David Grant wrote a book about it a hundred yeah. years later. Like, yeah. this is one of the craziest things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Actually, I was oh, like, yeah. you know, like I, you know, okay, I'll save some of what I'm going to say about that for a second here. What I, what I will say is that I did think it was heavy handed, especially because of who Martin Scorsese is. Yeah. 
Martin Scorsese is this old type of faithful Italian Catholic mm-hmm. who reminds me of my grandma, who is like Irish Catholic. <laughs> you yeah. know, like just by the way in which he is soft hearted, and I mean that as a deep compliment, the way in which he is gentle mm-hmm. charges whatever he's talking about with mm-hmm. a very tender moral authority. Mm-hmm. And it was over much at the end. Mm. And it felt like him saying, I am also condemning this, but I don't need him to do that because he made the whole film about it and pulled it off. And the other thing is like, to me, this is what I texted you. And this is when you were like, okay, like I'm excited to do the episode now. Like, I think the use of Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest Burkhart, which by the way, is one of DiCaprio's up there and like to me, What's eating Gilbert Grape and stuff like that. I thought it was so well done from him. Using him in that role and him commenting at the end felt like atonement for what I think, like, in a way, a failure Wolf of Wall Street was. Wolf of Wall Street is supposed to condemn a certain level of excess and corruption and ends up celebrating it. That, so that is a big area where we disagree. <laughs> Because every time I watch Wolf of Wall Street and because I watched it with sales guys, Mm -hmm. I was like, this is less successful to me than Goodfellas. Yeah. Like, and and because like, frankly, because Jonah Hill is so fucking funny. Yeah. Because Jonah Hill is so funny. It almost fucks up to me. Like that, it makes you enjoy Wolf of Wall Street like too much in a way where I felt like Scorsese was like, I have to be very, very clear that this, that's, these are the bad guys. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. So that is, I, you know, sir, I am familiar with that take on Wolf of Wall Street. Which I liked as a movie, I do want to say. Like, yeah. yeah. I do. So the, the big, you know, the hole in the argument that I'm about to make is sort of, you know, what you're saying, you watched it with sales guys and they loved it. And I know that there, you know, is an audience of people out there for whom they're like, that was the best. I, so when it comes to Scorsese's movies about people who rise to power and lose control of it, I actually think Wolf of Wall Street is the best one. Oh man, say more. I want to hear way more about that. The one, I, I don't think it fails to condemn. Largely as an example that a friend of mine uses and you know, the, I forgot about, but it is true. The very first shot of that is of someone's ass. And then you see his face, you know, because he's doing. It's true. Problems. That is true. Yeah. Like he's being shat into the world. But also. I there is something I love about sort of what the Wolf of Wall Street does with the audience mm-hmm. in it. And weirdly, it has like kind of. Not everyone is able to see it, but I think it has a very, it's been a while since I've seen this movie, but it has a kind of beautiful and gloriously excessive way of showing oneself and showing this country to itself. Is Wolf of Wall Street, it's sort of like, yes, there's that beginning where he shat into the world, so to speak. But it also, in so many words, it says like, come along, come along for the ride. This is going to be fun. We're going to sell things. We're going to fucking make millions. And then it does. And he does make millions. And then he just, there are naked people running everywhere and they're dwarf tossing. And then they do this. And then it just 
gets, it force feeds you. It says mm-hmm. like, want some of this? Now take it, take, take it, take yeah, it. Yeah. And it becomes to me impossible to enjoy. You know, you might have been like, okay, you know, who cares? This is going to be a good time. Or you might've watched the movie being like, this man is a piece of shit, but it's still, it is inviting you and it is violently giving it to you. And I love that more than I, I think it's a beautiful, a beautifully fucked up portrait of this country mm-hmm. at its worst. And in some ways that people miss that, you know, people are able to enjoy it, enjoy it and that they misread it. It's I mean, yeah, those guys were obviously that I that I, I saw it more with. to the point. And that yeah. so it's something Scorsese said, which I do think is kind of brilliant, though I, I won't say that you can't poke holes in it. it. He said, if you'd known for sure where I stood when I made this movie, this movie would have been forgettable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, that that something is I mean, he made that movie in 2013. You know, the overall discourse about children culture has changed so much since then. But yeah, I, I still, I, I will defend the Wolf of Wall Street for those reasons. But a chief, a, an enormous difference with Killers of the Flower Moon. And this is actually, so this is a place that I've seen some more conservative reviewers disagree with it. And uh, the, uh, the one I'm thinking of is Armand White in the National mm. Is But a very, and I, I think this is ultimately something that's good about about the movie is that he has a very clear moral stance in it about yeah. killers of the flower moon armand white i apologize that if i am being a little too callous about his argument but i he he in so many words said he thought it was too woke which i think is but i be that it's a pretty useless that's like being like you're being fucking too woke about custer's last stand like yeah. come on like <laughs> it's, it's not that there are no moral ambiguities. In fact, the character of Ernest is, a, as we've talked about for like 30 minutes, an investigation of those yeah. ambiguities. But yeah. the fact that you would surrender. So I hear your argument for Wolf of Wall Street. I should say that I didn't think it was a celebration only because I watched it while I was working at a place that was like Glen Gary, Glen Ross with barbells. But because I did actually think that to me, I thought... Goodfellas did a better job of communicating those themes. Uh huh. Yeah, a, a lot way, of a lot of people do feel that way. I the, in a way that was like more successful and frankly like less fun. Like that again to me, like it was Jonah Hill's teeth and his character that like upset the balance for me. And I love that performance from him. By the way, I think it's Jonah Hill's like best performance to date. Like I can't just him with his weird teeth being like fucking smoke crack with me. It's like it's. You know, just up there for me. But I will say that the ending didn't spoil the whole movie for me. I. Yeah. Of killers. Of killers. Of killers. Yeah. It didn't spoil the whole thing. And I. How do I want to say this? I thought I'm pretty sure this is going to be the last movie we get out of him. You think? I feel like. I think we might get another documentary. Mm -hmm. But. This was a three-hour movie that involved incredible, I mean, 
he has energy and money and everybody wants to be in a Scorsese movie. As I told you before we started recording, for me, this whole movie was a parade of, oh, that guy, Um, you know, and like Jack White is at the end of it, just is a bit part doing the radio play. Um, I think it's the last one. And I think he is one of the last of his generation. Yeah. And he is, and I'm going to clarify what I mean about this. One of the last capital A American capital D directors. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that we have as a culture, and I think you and I have talked about this in terms of literature, yeah, drifted into a post-national discussion of ourselves mm-hmm. that feels unmoored from any shared history. Yeah, yeah. And this felt to me like his testimony on one instance of what he thinks that shared history is comprised of. Yeah. And I think also it is worth juxtaposing young Scorsese's appearance in Taxi Driver. (laughs) (laughs) With his appearance, which was, by the way, the first thing I thought of. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as he stepped on screen, I was like, I know what's happening here. Yeah. I know a few things are happening here, but I know exactly what you said when you were on screen in Taxi Driver. And I know exactly what you're saying now, which is people can go watch Taxi Driver to know, figure out what I'm talking about. If you don't know, it's always worth a rewatch, but not that he was endorsing what that character was doing. But I think if he's going to be remembered as being a guy who's on screen, I understand at the end of his life where he's like, well, I'd like to be remembered for being in my movies for saying this at the end. I mean, there also there is, you know, in, he's in Kurosawa's Dreams playing Van Gogh, which is oh my I, God, that's right. In a ridiculous scene like that, that movie does have some good parts, but that it struck me as deeply silly when yeah. I saw. Yeah, but yeah, so that, so that you know, at, at least in terms of intent, you know, considering what Scorsese himself represents, you know, does make what he did here, you know, very admirable because he was, he went, you know, out of his way to, you know, he did in some ways, though he discussed it in, you know, using cinematic language that is familiar to him. He came to, he talked about a piece of history that was not. And I know, you know, some of the other, not exactly, so some of the stuff that the interviews with Osage people that I did read. So uh, another criticism of this movie is it focuses on the white people too much. And that, which is fair. And some of the Osage people um, have said, you know, it will take one of us to make a movie that is more fully about us. But, you know, we we like what he did um yeah you know and that uh, that this is the first step um and i think that's that's something it, anthony lane like in the new yorker said something like you know it's supposed to bear witness to this but you know it focuses on the white people who did it and never leaves never fully leaves their orbit and that you know i think there are it's weird so a lot of the things about this movie 
you know, when I step back a bit, I can see, you know, there are pros and cons to the, to that mm-hmm. approach he chose on one it's it, so on one hand, you know, he is forcing us to bear witness to what people did. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, it is a very complex story with so many different people involved in it that, you know, you could really, there are strong arguments to, you know, about towards approaching it from quite a few angles. You know, obvi- one obvious thing to say about it is, you know, you could tell the same story from the Osage perspective, you know, of, you know, the victims of okay. it. One thing that I keep thinking about is that, you know, while I think there are as I was saying earlier, many strengths to the approach that he chose, you know, focusing very, you know, minutely and rigorously on how this was carried out mm-hmm. over a three and a half hour period. I keep wondering to myself, and in some ways this is a bad question because it's a little, a little too general, but is this the most powerful way this story could have been told? Mm. Yeah. And yeah, well, I think that's a fair question. Not only that it's not only who it's focusing on, but what it's, fo- you know, all these like deals, all these killings and, you know, you know, little jockeyings for power. Is this what really brings, you know, this, you know, this tragic and horrifying thing that happened most fully to life? And, yeah. you know, it's, you know, it's a very lazy criticism in some ways a very lazy criticism for a viewer to make to say you know well actually i wanted a movie that was going to be like this you know or like Mm -hmm. start like making your own movie instead but i do keep wondering about sort of an approach and that this is a little vague but that essentially pulls back in perspective and watches everyone Mm, yeah you know that's you know there is there's no easy way to tell this story you know no, there's no easy way at all i mean that to me sounds like a miniseries personally like that's that's like a six episode thing which i would watch yeah you know yeah. like i i could stand to hear this story told a few more times from yeah. a few different angles like that's how i felt afterwards which not only speaks to the richness of the subject matter it's also one of the first things i've based on a non-fiction book i've read where i'm like oh i want to go read that now yeah you know where i was like well there's so much more here because the thing that was unclear to me is the relationship to the oil industry and like how that all worked and i had way more questions about i mean and this is because i'm like a nerd about this stuff even like the infrastructure agreements about how that oil gets moved out like who's got their hand in the till like for that all that stuff because it seemed like everybody was taking their cut but there was enough to go around that people were still getting crazy rich. The other thing that I was very curious about were what was the relationship? What were the relationships within the tribe? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, were there more people like Molly who were starting to become like weirded out by what was going on way before everybody else? Were there people that came knew knew about him before everybody else that he offed immediately like what was going on there because i think 
One of the things I learned living in New Mexico is that tribal relationships are not harmonious within themselves. And that plenty of people who grow up on the res get really pissed that the chief's family all has have new F-150s in their garage uh, while they're really struggling. And that's not every tribe. That's might not even be Osage. I'm just saying that it's usually way more complicated than I've ever assumed it to be. And that's true with basically every human community I've ever looked at. Yeah, well, that's, you know, one of one of the big pitfalls of the approach that Scorsese chose is like not only, you know, does it, you know, I mean, I, it's a very conventional criticism these days to say, you know, it doesn't leave the orbit of the white people. That's the white gaze. Yeah. The white gaze. And that, you know, that is valid, but it's not, you know, just purely like a humanitarian, like these are the people who had the crimes committed against them, you know, we should be seeing this from their eyes. It's also like it was a very complex situation. And they, there's a lot of money, which means there were a lot of problems. Yeah. And we, for the most part, don't really see them relate to each other and mm -hmm. don't really know. And there, there are, as you were saying, a lot of questions to be asked, you know, and raised about that. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, so I when I wonder if David Grant gets into that, I want to know way more about this sliver of history and the sliver of oil history, frankly, because, you know, we talk about Spindletop and like Texas and like, you know, parts of Pennsylvania and stuff like that. But this is, I think, very rich, very rich history to look into. And what I will say is that I knew going in that Scorsese was going to focus on Ernest or whatever, not just because I'd heard him interviewed about it, but because that is the type of person that he is most interested in overall. Yeah. That's who Scorsese is curious about because Scorsese as a Catholic is very troubled by original sin, our own culpability and the nature of evil. And corruption. He, a lot of, I mean, you think about the end of taxi driver, like these some really brilliantly disturbing and ambiguous portraits of redemption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A question though, this is, you know, something that, you know, I don't know if this information is available, but might there be someone like Ernest among the Osage? Well, so that's what I mean about like, what yeah. were the, yeah. Yeah. you know, who, who like, yeah, I had a lot of questions like that, um, you know, and I because I think when people there's a certain type of frankly white liberal who makes the it never leaves the white gaze approach who wants it to be a morality play from the indigenous people's perspective. Mm -hmm. I have the feeling that when the Osage want more of their story in it, they want more of their story in it. Yeah. Which contains many of those uh, varieties of character who they might even remember by name. Yeah. You know, like, I, again, I'm, I'm speaking out of ignorance here, so I'm not going to like put words in their mouths or whatever. And I know many, if not most of them were happy with the product, even yeah. if they had their own criticisms. I just, yeah, I want to say that there is a version of the never leaves the white gaze approach that is more sophisticated and thoughtful. And not simply slave morality, as Nietzsche would describe it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were briefly discussing Baldwin before 
you know, mm-hmm. we and you know, the one of his, I think, justly quoted, you know, essays, you know, everybody's protest novel. And he That's says, out of Harry Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Yeah. When he says, I think it makes the very convincing argument, you know, if you are going to write novels, you must be interested in all that a human is. You know, yeah. Start, you know, and and you know, th- so that is and, you know, I do not for a second want to pretend, you know, that, you know, Killers of the Flower Moon is the one time in American culture, you know, a Native American has ever been, you know, depicted in any way that isn't like stagecoach. You know, obviously there is a body of, you know, un, you know, as is often the case, under-recognized, you know. People, people can just look up Wes Studi's IMDb, frankly. Exactly. That'd be a great place to start. <laughs> yeah. Great place to start. There are many novels, you know, so many people, you know, and Scott Momaday, all of that. But, you know, I think Baldwin's observation, and we might be beating this point over the head a bit, but speaks to the sort of thing that, you know, we might see if an Osage person were to come forward and tell, you know, more stories about this. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And I think, and I, yeah. Overall, I'm very impressed with this movie. It was nice to see something that was three and a half hours and not a chore, right? I felt very transported. It was nice to see a Scorsese movie in theaters again, frankly, because I realized how this might be the last time I get to do that with a new movie from him. And I didn't take that for granted. Yeah. And it gave me hope that we can still keep having the American conversation as the American conversation. And so I very much appreciated that. And so those are sort of my final thoughts on it. Of course, if anybody else has thoughts or critiques, you can always comment via the Substack. But Andrew, did you have anything you wanted to add before we sign off? I mean, we talk about Scorsese all day, but uh, in some ways it feels like we barely scratched the surface. But yeah, I think I've said, you know, yeah, yeah said a lot today. <laughs> yeah, that's most of what I wanted to say. So everybody, remember, you can subscribe to the Substack so you can participate in these conversations and you can rate, like, review, all of that good stuff. I'd appreciate it. But the most important thing is to stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant. We will see you next time.